Hello, and welcome to America and Democracy from the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly, and in this series of interviews, I'll be asking authors to reflect on the state of American politics in the run-up to the election. So far in this series, we've spoken to Robert Rotberg about corruption and Jonathan Berman about anti-vaxxers. And in this episode, I was speaking to Carol A. Stabile, author of The Broadcast 41, published in April of last year by Goldsmiths Press. In her book, Carol traces the history of 41 women who were forced out of American television and radio in the 1950s as part of the Red Scare. I'll be asking her about how this program of state censorship constructed many of the talking points still shaping political discourse today. Carol is Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives for the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Oregon. She's also the author of Feminism and the Technological Fix, White Victims, Black Villains, Gender, Race and Crime News in the US, among other books. Which, you know, yeah, which we all do. I'm so, so full of rage right now that it could happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, maybe a good place to start. What, what are you filled with rage about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember the days after the 2016 election and, and waking up and, and thinking to myself, this is really bad. Um, maybe this is the worst it can get. And then in the years since, I'm sure you could appreciate this, right, on your side of the Atlantic, because it looks a lot like this year, um, just just seeing it so totally fall apart. And for me, I was finishing up the book as all of this is unfolding. And I, I remember that moment. I remember thinking about Trump the whole time as an inheritor of the kinds of legacies I'd been very critical in the book and as a, the kind of you know, descendant of this form of masculinity. And it was throughout very, very startling to me. And I, you know, in retrospect, that was foolish on my part and, and likely a result of my my class and racial privilege. But just thinking that it was it was so completely resonant. It was almost as if the the decades before, those decades between 1950 and in 2016 hadn't even happened, right? In terms of, you know, his obviously white supremacist positions, his misogyny, the attacks on immigrants. Um, you know, it was like being in some some horrible time machine. Yes. I mean, I completely agree. And when I was reading your book, I mean, I think it's a really great roadmap for a lot of the things that are happening at the minute. And so I thought with this conversation, what we could do is if I begin by kind of asking you to explain to listeners the kind of chronology that's kind of followed in the book from these 41 women's experience of working in television then being blacklisted. Um, and then maybe for the second part of the conversation, I could try and draw your research into dialogue with some of the things that are happening now, because the aim with these conversations is to reflect on the upcoming election, but also kind of zoom out and look at some of the broader historical shifts that are going to be kind of crystallised in the spectacle that will be that is this next election. Okay, so to start with, could you sort of briefly outline where this story starts in terms of what, what television, what the landscape of media and television is looking like in post-war America? What are the representations we're seeing? What are the representations that we aren't seeing? And then perhaps you could introduce the Broadcast 41, which your book is named after. So 
My my project really started percolating in the 1990s, if you can believe it, because I was I was struck by the the contrast between American politicians invocation of family values and their own families. And it, it was pretty stark whether you looked at the kind of right arm of American capitalism or the so-called left arm of American capitalism. You know, so from the Bushes to Clinton, we were hearing all this rhetoric. And of course, you know, its origins are are, are much earlier than that. And so I started thinking, because I'm historically minded, about how these stories came to be and the conditions in which those stories were created so that they could be re-invoked by generations of politicians who'd grown up with that sort of fantasy of American identity and American families. So um, that led me back to the early days of television, because again, as the book points out, a lot of these representations, a lot of the political discourse invoked televisual representations of family rather than actual families, because you couldn't exactly use Reagan's family um, as an exemplar of family values or Newt Gingrich's um, family and and, and history of philandering to support that that particular political vision. And so I started looking at um, who was writing and who was working in the industry in the years after World War II. Um, And what I discovered was very different than what I'd been taught to see in in that, that kind of landscape. You know, we have this sense when we look back on the history of media that, you know, to take just two groups like women and people of color um, just suddenly appear on the scene magically in the 1970s and that their struggles start there rather than being part of the history of those industries. And so as I started researching, um, I started discovering that there were a lot of ideas in the air after World War II and that people were really excited about using this new medium to promote civil rights, to promote understanding, to promote democracy, to educate and uplift people. That led me um, almost directly to the blacklist because by 1950, many of the people who had been innovators um, and, and who had kind of written and worked on these very progressive programs prior to 1950 were, were out, of the, out of the industry um, or had effectively been silenced. Um, by the force of the anti-communist backlash. It led me to think about this whole counterfactual landscape of television production. And, you know, a lot of the book, as you know, is based on access to declassified FBI files. And I'm still receiving some of them because in some cases it's taken me 10 years to get the documents. And so after I finished the book, I started getting files about the FBI's communist infiltration of radio and television program. Um, And it it really just emphasized in my mind that there was this whole possible sort of trajectory for TV. Like imagine American television, if W.E.B. Du Bois had been a news commentator at CBS. And this is one of the things that the FBI is really concerned about in the years after after World War War II. And that that was a possibility, right? CBS was was actually talking about the whiteness of their newsroom and the need to 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 have these kinds of 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 rich and varied voices. Yeah, I mean that's um 
We'll come back to this later, but one thing I found really optimistic about your book is you can get this sense that the kind of white homogeny, the kind of conservative consensus of this era is just kind of like a natural thing. Whereas actually it took a huge amount of effort, huge amount of money, huge amount of labor to keep it that way, which in one way is depressing, but, you know, in another sense is quite hopeful. Okay, so the broadcast 41, a group of women who were working in the industry, could you talk about those women? What were their roles in the industry? What were their backgrounds? But also what was their shared political identity and commitments? And also where did they differ politically? Right. Well, I should probably just back up and say that like the current iteration of of this form of of masculinity in the late in the 1940s, um, the anti-communist movement was using media, you know, to suppress dissent and to make sure that alternative viewpoints didn't get the kind of of airing and publicity that they were really worried about. And so one of the instruments of this was a a blacklisting magazine called um, Counterattack. And the the founders of Counterattack and the publishers published all, they published what they called factual information (laughs) to distinguish their brand of information from the apparently propagandistic information pervaded by proponents of civil rights. And and they published in 1950 a book called Red Channels. And Red Channels was very influential in the television and broadcast industry. It was it was used to screen personnel. It was used to for um, networks to generate their own networks and advertising agencies, I should add, to generate their own blacklists. And so that became a, a primary source document for me. The founders of um, the American business consultants that published both Counterattack and the American and in Red Channels um, were all former FBI agents who had deep connections to the FBI. And so what I noticed in reading Red Channels, which was referred to as the Bible of the Blacklist, was that um, in an industry that was overwhelmingly male, 41 of the 151 people listed in the pages were women. And that was surprising. And so I started looking at the profiles of the women, the work that they'd done. It was a fairly heterogeneous group. Anti-communists were casting a a wide net. So some of them were classical musicians. Some of them were choreographers. Some were actors. A handful were writers like Dorothy Parker and Lillian Hellman and Vera Caspary. But I started looking at the commonalities and the differences among those women. Some were members of the Communist Party, a handful. Um, Shirley Graham Du Bois, who was married to W.E.B. Du Bois, um, was listed. She was a member of the Communist Party. Vera Caspary was a member of the Communist Party. But, but also keep in mind, you know, it's so funny talking to people outside the United States where you don't have the same history of anti-communism. It's hard to grasp the fact that being a member of the Communist Party was so thoroughly criminalized by that point in time that it was enough to get you fired from your job. Um, If you had been, even 15, 20 years ago, if you'd been a member of the Communist Party. And a number of these women, um, Caspary, Um, left in 1939. So they hadn't been members of the Communist Party, but that history was used to smear and and retaliate against them. Some of them, of course, were were liberals. Some of them were blacklisted simply for their support of of the New Deal and, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
during a depression. So it was a wide range of of women um, whose political views really ranged across the American, this sort of broad, heterogeneous American left. Yeah, yeah. And obviously a big part of what happened to their politics was that the, the complexities and the nuances of it were just completely stripped away. And that was kind of part of the tactics. What were the kind of, we've already touched on it a little bit, but could you talk a little bit about the forces that gathered to fuel anti-communism in America? You kind of mentioned some of the organizations there. And uh, could you also talk about the FBI's role in all of this? The anti-communist movement, you know, really begins after World War I, um, you know, out of fears that there might be a revolution in the United States, similar to the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, during World War II, the attacks on progressives in government, education, in media in particular, kind of go underground. There are other things going on. It isn't an opportune moment to invoke those fears of communism and socialism, um, but they start to ramp up almost immediately after World War II. There's a lot of concern about, you know, about the, the growing power of the civil rights movement. And even though communism, quote, communism is the specter, a lot of the fears are fueled by white supremacy. And in, in fairness, in the United States, I mean, the Communist Party was the only party to support a federal anti-lynching law. The Communist Party, whatever else you want to say about it, its views on race were far more progressive than either of the other, um, you know, either of the two official um, parties. So this all starts to intensify um, after World War II. In the meantime, you know, the FBI has been gathering information on so-called communists, um, for as long as it's been in operation and propagandizing against communism and socialism, um, you know, since the, the mid-1930s when the FBI establishes its own, it, they call it the Crime Records Bureau, but it's really its public relations operation. So these forces converge along with veterans organizations, um, which as some historians have pointed out are also these... Oh, God, I hate to use this. I, um, this may be something I take back, but they are kind of super spreader events for white supremacy, right? I'll have to work through that metaphor in order to fully commit to it. But all of these forces sort of converge um, after World War II. And in the meantime, the FBI is ramping up its surveillance of domestic dissidents. And they have a whole range of um, operations called common fill programs which means communist infiltration of acts. These are precursors to the counterintelligence programs that are better known in the 1960s and the 1970s that are aimed at organizations like the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. So they're really focused on three things. They're really concerned about civil rights. They're also concerned about organizations that are trying to fight the commercialization of American media. And they're really worried about what's going to happen in television because everyone knows that post-war America, television is going to take off. It's going to be the most powerful medium um, that anyone's seen. So there are a lot, there's lots of anxiety about that. So the FBI 
um, in concert also with legislative bodies, um, with Senate subcommittees, with state-level investigatory bodies, starts investigating communism infiltration. The most obvious example is the Hollywood 10, right? And the attack on the the attacks on the Hollywood 10 and the eventual imprisonment of people who didn't prove to be friendly with witnesses in front of the House and American Activities Committee. So all of this is all of this is unfolding. Um, at the same time, there are people leaving the FBI um, who are very entrepreneurial and who understand that they can make some money in this newly emerging security slash surveillance state. And although they're focused on trade unions, they also increasingly focus on media, especially in New York City, which is seen as a hotbed of of communist activity. And that's the kind of crucible out of which the American business consultants emerges. And even though they, you know, in geological time, they have a short run, right, from roughly 1947 to 1952 is a kind of era of, of their influence. Their, their impact is really disproportionate to their size. And they're very well connected. They have, they're all former FBI agents. They probably stole files from the FBI that let them launch their operation. And there's a lot of back and forth that, you know, that J. Edgar Hoover is very angry that they have left the FBI and stolen the files. But at the same time, he's, he's also very admiring of the work that they're able to do. And so the FBI knows that they're doing things like they're breaking into buildings illegally, they're they're conducting illegal wiretaps. The FBI is very hands-off because again, their their political beliefs align. And, and that at the end of the day is what's most important. Okay. Yeah. So you have these agencies trying to shape this new medium of public discourse essentially. How did they go about affecting the careers of these women? What techniques were they using to derail their careers? Well, it, it's funny, isn't it? I was thinking about that this this morning that, you know, despite what Marshall McLuhan said, sometimes the message is the message. And they were a very effective in using strategies and tactics we've seen over the last four years. They smeared people without evidence. And much like Twitter, you can disprove something on Twitter, but once you put it out there, it's out there. And so just a suggestion that someone had been a fellow traveler, right? They didn't have to even belong to the Communist Party. They had this whole capacious kind of baggy term of fellow traveler that, that encompassed pretty much anyone who wasn't willing to publicly support anti-communist principles in politics. So they smeared people. They called them in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. They promoted rumors and gossip about them, all of it without factual backing. There were some cases where people did fight back and made them correct their errors in the pages of counterattack. But once that information was out there, um, I think someone said of Jean Muir, who was the first actress to be targeted, it's like a bruised apple. You know, once the apple is bruised, the taint remains. And that proved really true because even if you defended yourself, it just fed the publicity. And what kind of techniques of harassment and uh, surveillance were happening as well? Could you talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, in, in, in some cases, people were followed by the FBI. Madeline Lee Guilford, for example, who had two small children, um, got to know the FBI agents who were parked outside her house 
on a daily basis. So there was that level of intimidation. People's mail was being tampered with. And so they certainly knew about that. Um, The FBI was getting information about people's bank accounts and looking at their financial records. In a number of cases, people could no longer get passports. And this is really, really terrible for musicians in particular who could still work in Europe, but because they were denied a passport, um, they could no longer travel and make a living. They cultivated confidential informants from their friends and their workplaces so that it became a, a very paranoid period for a lot of people because you just didn't know who among your circles of friends and coworkers might be providing information to the FBI. And there's a lot of evidence in the FBI files that, you know, much of this is um, just professional meanness and bitterness. So people who felt like they had been passed up for a role or they weren't getting the kinds of writing jobs um, they wanted would actually provide information about people who appeared to be more successful than they were. I might change tacks a little bit and ask if we could kind of draw some of these things into a kind of broader context How did this set of operations of intimidation and censorship, could you talk about the effect that this had on the American political discourse? Well, certainly it removed from the industry a lot of very, very talented people who had progressive points of view. And so I don't know, if you look at, there's a a film called Gentleman's Agreement that used a lot of blacklisted talent, which is about anti-Semitism in the United States after World War II. And there's also Counterattack, which was written and produced by Adrian Scott, one of the Hollywood 10. I think people learned not to take on those topics, right? So the people who remained in the industry, there were just so many topics that had become associated with communism that you couldn't even talk about, right? Immigration is one. And so before the 1950s, there are a good number of what what were called or known as sort of ethnic sitcoms. But even ethnic sitcoms that trafficked in terrible stereotypes became kind of untouchable in the 1950s. And I, I think if you look at the history of immigrants on American television, you can see that, you know, no one wants to take on a topic that no matter how you deal with it is going to be seen as controversial. And it may provoke a backlash among conservatives. So, so that chilling effect, I think, got baked into the routines of the industry. You just learned, right? I mean, we all know we work in various places, there's some fights you want to have and there's some fights you think you could win. And you learn um, as you move up the ranks what those are. And so, you know, writing about race, writing about women's liberation, writing about, again, immigration, a peace even, right? All of these become very, very controversial. And while there, while there are people who do manage to do some of this work, it's, it's not easy to do it, and it, it isn't really encouraged. And could I give you just one example that I love? Please do, yeah. Okay. 
So, you know, the, the, um, the BBC program, The Hour, which is about a, was about a newsroom? Yeah. In the 1950s. Okay. If you look at that alongside Mad Men, <laughs> I think you get a sense of the long-term effects, right? Because in Mad Men, what you have is this fantasy of the 1950s in which women aren't part of that industry at all. They just kind of accidentally happen into it. And also they're kind of stupid, like they get pregnant and don't know they're pregnant until they give birth and things like that. Um, but if you look at the hour, it's a really different kind of sense of that struggle and a sense that women were struggling in that industry for a long, long time. There had been women in the industry. And so I think that, that again, you, you get these historical representations that are really warped by, the anti, by that anti-communist lens. I'm really glad you used the word fantasy there because one of the images that is really prevalent at the beginning of the book is an image of the quote-unquote post-war American family. And it's an image of a kind of white, heterosexual, gender-normative, patriarchal family um, that, as you write about, is drawn on over and over again by Reagan and Trump. And, you know, the term is you know, a a politics of family values, but it's never a family values of access to education, access to healthcare, access to childcare. Can you talk about that image of that family and what hierarchies are reflected in that image that was so precious to the conservative movement then, the anti-communist movement then, and still now in American politics is so useful for people? Yeah, make America great again, huh? I mean, it is kind of it is kind of based on that that fantasy of of what the country looked like. This sort of um, self reliant, economically solvent white unit that has always been, you know, out of the reach of of so many Americans. But but it it was very it's it's very useful as a trope, right? I mean Reagan gets to invoke it later. And like let's not forget Reagan's role as an FBI informant and a union buster who worked to um you know to suppress progressive views in um in Hollywood. These were people who who knew what they were doing, who knew that what they were appealing to was a white fantasy about America, um, even before the 1950s. If you look at it, the anti-communists who were active then, they're very deliberate in, in creating this particular vision and protecting and defending it. I think what happens with television in the 1950s is that they have the opportunity to create an industrial product that they then get to reanimate for decades and decades. I mean, if I think about American television, it's only very recently, right, that you have representations of of Black families that aren't pathologized, right? That you have some representations of immigrant families and their struggles that aren't like the godfather or something. You know, so so it's been a, a resilient trope that they've been able to reactivate for their base for a long time. And because the industry has been so focused on not angering that base, it's become a means to alienate and offend lots of people whose families don't look like that, whose experiences of America were not like that. It's okay to offend all of us, right, in the interests of defending that version of America and its greatness. Yeah. 
and also the way in which it's bound up with a certain set of roles for men, women, heterosexual relationships is really key. And obviously at this point, you know, perhaps you could talk about the decision to write specifically about the women that were blacklisted and their experiences of facing fights on multiple fronts. So not only are they involved with these civil rights struggles, labour struggles, they're also facing homophobia or misogyny in those struggles themselves. Could you talk a little bit about right, that? Right. Well, you know, the thing that was interesting looking at the broadcast 41 and looking at those 41 women who are blacklisted is that many of them were the children of immigrants. You know, many of them did not conform to norms of gender or to sexuality. And, you know, they were, as you put it, they were they were struggling on on multiple fronts. So if you think about um, Margaret Webster, who was a, a lesbian in theater, but whose work was really um, focused on addressing segregation in theater, right? And her commitments were to civil rights, right? And the rights of refugees and immigrants. You know, I, I think that we forget all those histories at some peril because they're really important. I, I love stories, and, and maybe this is my optimism, I love stories about people who did the right thing at a moment in time when it was so hard to do the right thing and when the price you paid for doing the right thing could be so steep, right? I think about John Brown. But I also think about these women who, who knew the forces that were gathering against them. And, you know, just really focused on what they thought was politically right and politically true. So, for example, there's this whole group of what we would now describe as queer women um, in and around um, women's publishing and broadcasting that no one's written about. And, and, you know, their politics are very intersectional, right? They weren't just focused. I mean, it wasn't really a time when you could engage in um, LGBTQ activism, as if those terms even existed at that point in time. I mean, there were also women who fought against the gender binary, right? And whose lives didn't conform to a gender binary. So it, it really is a, an interesting moment in American history that I think we've, we've lost sight of its complexity and of its importance to our contemporary moment because we viewed it through the lens of anti-communism. So if I think about like Dorothy Parker and Lillian Hellman, who are, are kind of amazing women, right? But the way that they've been framed is through this lens of difficult women, right? They were just difficult because, of course, men in the industry weren't difficult, you know, or someone like Shirley Graham Du Bois, who was the first Black woman. I mean, she broke so much new ground, but because of anti-communism, you know, her books are out of print. She still doesn't, I mean, she's only starting to receive some of the attention, that, that other authors have already received because they weren't, you know, their reputations weren't ruined in the yeah. same way. Yeah. I mean, I sort of share that kind of optimism of kind of identifying these kind of struggles historically where, you know, people have shown kind of immense levels of sort of solidarity with other people. And one thing I do find really optimistic about your book is, again, that kind of double-sided coin of it makes me optimistic, but also in another way makes me quite depressed is how many of the exact same narratives are just kind of trotted out over and over again. You know, for example, the idea that women not serving their role as subservient housewives who are kind of sexually inhibited and 
always loyal to their husband somehow is the the root cause of the decline of Western civilization. You know, because, I mean, you read that and you think that's just absurd. But, you know, you see it everywhere from really widely uh, respected figures, people like Jordan Peterson, and you see it on people like Ben Shapiro, who are these quite big figures on the right. And I think it holds a lot of track for people. Another narrative is this idea of black people, women, you know, their struggles for civil rights, they're actually not their struggles. They're actually secret plots of communists. You know, if we something like the Black Lives Matter protests, anarchists, quote unquote, being bust in from out of town. And could you talk about a few more of those narratives that are just still so prevalent and, you know, how they function and how we can kind of reframe them? Yeah. No, that's such an important question. I was thinking about this with reference to Trump's increasing emphasis on law and order, you know, which is such a tired racist trope because clearly he doesn't care about law and order when it comes to his own behavior. But I I, I think you're right. There's this logic and it has everything to do with racism that there have to be some there has to be some kind of outside agitation, right? That marginalized, oppressed, disenfranchised people cannot make these arguments and organize these movements on their own, right? They're always and that's what's so interesting about the last eight months in particular is it really feels like Trump is so desperate that he's just going deep into that historical playbook um, in ways that make very little sense. So I was thinking this morning about his recent tweets about, you know, the radical left in Nancy Pelosi. Well, I can tell you, I do consider myself radical and I consider myself a leftist. And those people have nothing to do with my politics, right? So, you know, I think it's enough that he can panic people or at least panic his base using tropes that really don't seem to work anymore to generate fear and 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 to get people well to get people who support white supremacy on board. The other thing that's interesting too is there are the recent attacks on education because that's something I didn't talk about enough in my book. But the the blacklist really affected progressive educators. When I was a when I was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, I think the provost still had to swear an oath every year, saying that no faculty members were members of the Communist Party. Uh, I don't think that that's changed, honestly. I think it's probably still on the books. But it shows you the level of fear about education, educated people. So now this this recent attack on critical race theory and what he's calling racial racial sensitivity training really does seem again it's like it's like he's just going he's thumbing through the playbook so what i wanted to ask you is to kind of draw some of these uh histories into dialogue with the quote-unquote culture war quote-unquote cancel culture quote-unquote freedom of speech because so many people seem to be energized by this idea that they're being censored or certain ideas aren't being listened to uh, and that they should be allowed to use kind of whatever language they want and that and that they feel like they're being censored. And I feel like this story has so much to say on those questions of, well, actually, historically, who has been censored? What is actually unacceptable and what actually has been removed from American dialogue? So I was wondering if you could reflect on those debates that are unfolding at the minute with the Broadcast 41 mm-hmm. in mind. Mm-hmm. These are authoritarian movements, 
authoritarian movements like nothing less than being challenged or being questioned. I'm an educator. I've taught for a long time now, and I spend a lot of time answering questions in talking to my students about, you know, things that they don't understand or places where they disagree. And I just feel like that's so important and so valuable as part of the process of education. But again, anti-communism and, and you know, it's, its most recent iteration in Trump, they don't, they just want to be right. They don't want to be challenged. And so it really does strike me as ironic that their critique of cancel culture when they are the ones um, who refuse to listen to scientists, who refuse to engage in any kind of principled discussion based on research, based on facts, based on things that we know about the world, rather than inflammatory rhetoric and propaganda. So it really is a curious inversion of that. And I think sometimes they hide behind, you know, this demonization of social media right? This is what I said earlier, like sometimes the message is a message, <laughs> the medium isn't the message, you know, and, and I, I think people will say, well, you know, Twitter and social media, they've created such terrible acrimonious cultures. But, you know, in the research I was doing, these women received death threats, right? They received hideous forms of, co- of, of communication from anti-communist political organizations and individuals. Judy Holiday, for example, um, when she was pregnant, had been blacklisted and started receiving messages saying that they people hoped that her baby was born with defects because she was a traitor to the country. So I feel like what social media have done is pulled back the veil on some of the really, really terrible bullying practices. I also think it it allows has allowed people for good and ill, to know that they're not alone. I think one of the most terrible effects of the 1950s blacklist is that you were so isolated. You didn't know who you could talk to. You couldn't find other people who'd had similar experiences. And, you know, traditional media, the gatekeepers were so fully in charge that it made it difficult to tell alternative stories. You know, so to loop it back to this this notion of free speech, the people who are talking about free speech, they don't want to have a conversation. They want to have a monologue. And they're just really angry that principled people are challenging them on um, their half-baked opinions. Yeah. One really good example of that, actually, that is happened in the last couple of weeks in the UK, which is just like straight out of your book in this period of history, is that the government circulated a document on what should and shouldn't be educated in schools. And in the same document, they've said, you have to educate about the risks of cancel culture and censorship. And then a few pages later, they say, but you can't educate people using anti-capitalist material. So it's just perfect uh, encapsulation of that. Okay, so to finish off, I'd quite like to end on a, another optimistic note. Um, one of the ways I'm kind of asking people to finish off these conversations is to I guess, advise them on how they can organise and sort of advocate in the lead up to this election. And in this instance, I think it's quite interesting because neither Donald Trump or Joe Biden, they both in a way draw on a kind of anti-communist playbook. And I was wondering if you could share any lessons that we could take from the struggles of these women that we can can take into the future with us. Well, you know, despite 
the anti the shared anti communist mm-hmm. rhetoric, and you're you're absolutely right to do that because Joe Biden has taken pains to distance himself from those traditions. I, I think that there's a generation I'm seeing it in students who are really interested in these ideas, and they're interested in you know thinking about these histories in ways that haven't been available to them in the past. So I feel like that. That movement coupled with the movement for racial justice in this country, I don't think that can be stopped. And I think that we have tools at our disposal that previous generations didn't. You know, when I was thinking about the, you know, some differences between 1950 and now, you know, 1950, the anti-communists wrote in on the on the coattails of a very strong economy. They don't have that now. And I think that the pandemic and the economic recession and the experience that people are having of its impact on their everyday lives, I think that there's going to be a place for ideas about healthcare, about sharing, about compassion, about a, a government that cares for people rather than incarcerates and murders them. I think all of those things are in the air in in ways that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Don't get me wrong, I'm terrified because, you know, the next year or so, despite, you know, whatever happens with the election are going to be impossibly hard. You know, the other thing I'm hopeful about is, you know, reinventing public education in the UK and the United States because it's been so deracinated by neoliberalism. And, you know, one of the ways that you get people to agree to authoritarian regimes is by scaring them and preventing them from acquiring the tools they need to be critical. Carol, thanks so much for speaking to me today. I think that's a really nice place to leave it, if that's okay with you. Yeah, thank you too. Thanks thanks for reading my book and for talking to me about it. I'm glad that there was some part of it that made you feel a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, no, it did. And yeah. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you. And um, yeah, yeah, if you write another one, you'll have to let me talk to you about it again. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, rate and share this episode. I'd like to thank Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galeno, who provided the soundtrack. And once again, remember to join a union, support independent journalism and vote on November 3rd.